welcome to the After the Bell podcast, brought to you by Connects Education Academy. Our podcast is here to help teachers, leaders and tutors. We will be discussing the latest issues in education and sharing top tips for use in the classroom, both face-to-face or virtually. Welcome back to your weekly educational podcast from Connects Academy, After the Bell. We return to focus on the Send Code of Practice series, and I'm joined by Andy Bridge, a current deputy head teacher, and Debbie Davis, head teacher of a primary school, and both are experienced Senkos. Welcome, Debbie. Welcome, Andy. Thank you both for joining us today. It's great to have you here again. Yes. It's a pleasure. We're going to look today at further education, often overlooked, and, and the SEN code of praxis. Thankfully, support for students with SEN doesn't just stop when they finish school at 16. There are important considerations for all post-16 education providers to understand, which we're going to discuss in a bit more detail. So, Debbie, let's get started by acknowledging that support for students with special educational needs doesn't end when they finish at school. Can you tell us about the important considerations for post-16 education providers? Absolutely. The the post-16 stage is a critical time for young people with special educational needs. As they transition from school to further education or training, it's really important that that we get it absolutely right. So in England, the Special Educational Needs and Disability Code of Practice 2015, it provides guidance for post-16 providers on how to support these students effectively. And it emphasises a a person-centred approach, recognising that every student is unique and has individual needs. And that, again, is something that's underpinned everything that we've been talking about through the whole of these podcasts, really. Andy, could you explain, I think we've touched on it before, but what a person-centred approach entails and how it benefits students? Yeah, of course, uh, you know, we have touched upon this concept, as you said, it's basically placing the student at the heart of every decision-making process, ensuring their voice is heard and that their aspirations are considered and um, you know, previous episodes we've focused on like early year settings and it can be really difficult when the child is that young to have a, you know, to let them have their voices heard and um, support them to articulate their thoughts because they might not be able to verbalise that. But by the time a child is at the post-16 stage, really their views uh, should be absolutely central to it because, you know, they are young adults. Um, so it's ensuring that they're at the heart of that, that we're considering career aspirations and if they want to go to university or look for an apprenticeship or employment and ensuring that everything is aligned um, around that student and their views and where they want to move on to. Um, A quote from the Code of Practice um, about this is, post-16 institutions should have regard to the principle that young people with SEN and disabilities should be enabled to participate in decisions about their future and to exercise choice and control over the support they receive and the outcome they wish to achieve. So that's what we know we've got to do. Um, One of the things I think is sad though that um, maybe indicates we're not quite getting this right is there is a very high dropout rate in post-16 provision of children and young people with SEN compared to children without SEN. So uh, I'm not saying that 
school leaders and senkos within those settings aren't doing their job at all of course they're working hard to support them but maybe something isn't going quite right if we've got such a significant number of children young people with SEN that are choosing to drop out we maybe need to look at that person-centered approach again and say actually are we doing as much as we can are we listening to them as much as we can about the support that they want or don't want uh, yeah that there is uh, evidence to show that there is a massive dropout in in fe and, and post 16 and i think yeah that person-centered approach actually almost getting them ready for adulthood as, as well is also part of that process isn't it and the one of the elements is the EHC plan, which is a crucial document for students, particularly in further education. How can it be effectively implemented by post-16 providers then, Debbie? So implementing the EHC, EHC plan, the EHCP, requires really close collaboration between the student, family and the institution. It's really important to further education providers that they have a designated uh, SENCO um, special educational needs coordinator who can support students in accessing the necessary support. They should also establish effective channels of communication with like local agencies, external agencies, such as local authorities, health services, and this will ensure a coordinated approach. And I do have a reference two from the code of practice like Andy so I'll, I'll, I'll read this out to you because it's, it's, it's interesting. Institutions should work closely with children and young people with special educational needs or disabilities and their families to ensure their needs are met and that they're fully engaged in decisions about their education. This includes taking into account the child or young person's views, wishes and feelings and those of their parents. Comes back to what you were saying, Andy, as well there. That seems essential for ensuring a smooth transition and, and continuity as well of support. What other types of support should further education providers consider them providing, Andy? Do you know, I think it needs to be very personal to the student and their need, but you know, example types of things might be specialist teaching or support staff. It could be reasonable adjustments to teaching and assessment methods. It could be um, access arrangements in exams like extra time, work processing. Uh, it could be technology, it could be providing iPads or um, voice recognition software where a student can speak and it will type up notes for them and that's going to facilitate their learning. Um, you know, even just thinking about the physical environment, uh, is, are there working lifts, are there ramps, is it accessible um, to accommodate students that have got disabilities? And um, we, we kind of keep coming back to it all the time, but the, the best way to know if you're doing it is, is to ask the student. And, and actually, um, you know, I'm thinking of a student from a few years ago who, in a sixth form provision, had an EHCP that gave them full-time TA support but actually the view of the parent and that student was actually we don't want that anymore because we want him to become more independent in a year's time he wants to move out and go to university um, it, he finds it embarrassing and he wants to be like his friends he doesn't want a, a teaching assistant sitting by his side in every single lesson we want to gradually remove that support and build independence over time and then it's a case of saying actually that that's a great point let's review the HCP let's have a meeting 
let's do a review, let's come up with something more befitting because this plan that was written three years ago doesn't meet your needs anymore. So let's change it, let's make it bespoke, let's update it. I love that concept actually, Andy, of, of um, considering and keeping it up to date and keeping it refreshed because actually what would apply and, and be impactful in a school environment, a further education environment, and potentially could be an apprenticeship environment yeah. is very, very different as well because that's all forms part of the post-16 um, outcomes. Debbie, what were, what were you going to share there? So for me, inclusion is the key to educational and, and social development for students with special educational needs. So when you look at a, a post-16 provision, uh, we should be promoting a culture of absolute inclusivity and fostering support and accepting um, an, an accepting environment for all students. So this would look like raising awareness and understanding of all the disabilities amongst the staff and students and providing training opportunities and encouraging peer and support networks. And also by adopting inclusive practices, colleges can create an environment where everyone feels valued and, and empowered. That is really key to making it work. I love the fact that we're uh, focusing in on the keys to make things work here. And on those notes, Andy, can you give us an example of what this might look like in daily practice? Yeah, do, do you know, I'm thinking of a, an example in, in my post-16 setting where we had a student with a physical disability who was desperate to do the level three vocational sport course. Um, and it would have been very easy for that PE department to say it it just doesn't work. This, you know, the sports that we have planned in the course, you, you can't do them in a wheelchair. It, it, it's not accessible for the facilities that we've got. But you know, of course they didn't do that. Um, and, and that they, they made something very bespoke. They adapted the course to what that student could do, what sports they could access. Um, you know, and some of that was an investment in resources and time and staffing and staff needing training in different sports they might not have been aware of um, but that student that could have quite easily been turned away from the course that would be illegal but it would have been easier um, actually ended up loving that course thriving on it and got a, a level three distinction um, at, you know at the end of their course because the team had an inclusive approach and made the adjustments that were needed for that student to thrive. That, that's fantastic. It shows that inclusion truly matters and and actually what an impact that's made on, on that student's life and enabled them to progress on further. That's a wonderful story. Yeah. Thank and you for sharing, Andy. As well as that student getting something out of it, don't the rest of the class benefit from that? That, you know, they, yeah. they've then got that knowledge of all of those different sports and, um, you know, seeing how uh, people with a physical disability can still lead active, healthy lives and participate in sport and 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 they're seeing that inclusion. That's powerful for the rest of the class. Yeah, it's really empowering as well for the student because they feel that they can achieve anything if they can overcome those barriers. And also it's got to be incredibly rewarding, although hard work for the teachers and teaching assistants involved actually working out ways to to make a, you know an environment suitable and and enabling that opportunity for that students must have been an incredible experience for them 
Yeah, and it's quite, um, you know, I, I think if you've got a student with an EHCP who names you as their preferred provider, you should almost view that as a privilege because that student and, and those parents and carers trust you and they trust your mm. organisation that you're going to do what's right to provide all the support that, that their child needs. So I think it's, um, you know, a, a great thing that, that they feel that confidence that you'll be able to meet their child's needs. And that segues nicely into talking about the role of parents and carers in supporting students with SEN in further education. Debbie, have you got any thoughts that you can share here? I have. And I think back to my own practice and the practice of SENCOs that, uh, you know, I've line managed and, and, and continue to work with. And I'd love to give you some real life examples of how parents can be engaged and in that graduated approach. Um, which is outlined in, in the uh, SENCO practice 2015 for identifying and assessing a child's special educational needs. So let, let me let me just take you through some if that's OK. So please do regular communication. Schools can engage parents by uh, maintaining open lines of communication. We know that we've talked about that and how important that is. I mean, that might look like regular meetings, just a phone call, um, a ping in your box, like Andy says in uh, past podcasts about what the ch what your child's doing in the day, which communication is good. Um, and, you know, you can talk about the goals and any concerns that you've got. And parents can provide invaluable insight into their child's needs and experiences outside of school as well. So regular communication is number one, I would imagine. Um, also, we've got parental consultations so schools can organize structured parental conversation uh, consultations as part of the graduated approach i know that in settings where i've worked we've had um organizations where parents of children with sen can come and just be together have a cup of tea talk about their lives and just get together really um, and these consultations can provide the opportunity for parents to discuss with the child's needs and share their observations and continue to develop um, different strategies and interventions and share. Um, and then I have talked about the individual education plan, which is the IEP. It might be referred to in different ways in different settings. Um, but if an individual education plan or IEP or, or similar document is created for, for a child, then parents absolutely must be actively involved in planning and, and reviewing in that process so they can cont contribute their knowledge about their child's strengths and weaknesses and, and preferences to ensure that the plan is tailored to meet their specific needs. I mean, can, those are the things that come to mind for me, Andy. Have, have you got any others that you think? I think that's the main ones, but I, I think, as with anything, um, it's finding out, you know, doing as much as you can and offering as many ways of communicating as possible on the hope that if we try all of them, we'll find one that resonates with a parent. So, you know, as you said, it, it could be face to face meetings. Maybe we could do parent workshops, training sessions. We could get guest speakers in. It might be written reports. It might be a text every Friday with an update. Uh, it could be inviting parents and carers in to meet with the head a year and the Senko and the student. It, I think the more that you offer, the greater chance you'll find an inroad with the parents and carers that that means they can access um, support and the involvement in some way. 
think that's uh, really, really key. Um, I think there's so many other kind of areas that we could touch on, such as parent workshops and training, written reports and progress updates and and the input that parents have in decision making. You know, schools should actively um, seek parent parental input when making decisions about their child's education and support. Um, and I know that things involving parents in discussions about potential possible intervention interventions, placements or changes to support strategies that ensures that decisions are made collaboratively. And then that takes into account the unique knowledge and perspective of the child's parents back to the parent being the expert as well. It's important to always remember that these examples may vary depending on the specific policies and practices of the school or education institution. So the key is to establish that collaborative and supportive relationship between parents and educators, even at further education and post 16, to ensure the best outcomes for the child with SEN. Thank you both for sharing today. And I can see that the work in post 16 with regard to SEND is underpinned by expectations and the points are clear in the SEND Code of Practice 2015. And the emphasis absolutely has to be on the transition process from school to post 16 as well. I'm sure that the conversation and detail in today's podcast has been most helpful to our listeners. And in our ninth podcast, we're actually going to focus in on preparation for adulthood, which is something which is also something that's woefully overlooked. You can pick up our After the Bell podcast, which are released on a weekly basis and provide quick tips and discussions with our experts around all things educational. Access this on your daily commute if you're walking the dog or as your focus for the day. Thank you for listening to After the Bell. Mm-hmm.